you know, sort of to sort of fight against any sort of darkness that he was doing, actually to do it quite sort of matter of fact and quite politely, seemed enjoyable. I, I don't know, when we were doing it, it was like that's and that feels sort of crunchy, you know, it feels like satisfying to do. That's why I don't think he's mad, you know, I, I think it's very deliberate. It's sort of scarier if he's not mad. Welcome back to another episode of West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast, where we're currently covering House of the Dragon, HBO's first Game of Thrones successor series. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Lauren Morgan and the surprise return of EW staff writer and podcaster Christian Holov. <laughs> Christian, I know you've been off in Lord of the Rings territory on EW's All Rings Considered podcast. Thank you so much for popping over back to Westeros. Thanks for having me back. And I'm and I'm glad to be with both main hosts instead of the like backdoor pilot, you know, spin-off episode <laughs> that me and Allison did a couple weeks ago. You know, it's been fun covering the distinguished competition on our other contemporary fantasy series podcast. But I'm sure all the listeners out there are excited for the return of Christian's Clubfoot Corner, the segment <laughs> of the podcast where I talk about how much I love Laris Strong. <laughs> Well, this week we're going to be talking about episode seven of House of the Dragon. But before we get into the nitty gritty details, there's another deleted scene that's been popping up on social media that I want to talk to you guys about. Spoilers to anyone listening who isn't caught up with the show. Christian, I I talked to Lauren about this beforehand, but I don't know if you've seen this. Some photos have appeared on Twitter recently. I found them on the quote out of context House of the Dragon Twitter feed. Um, (laughs) They appear to be from episode episode six with Damon and Pentos. One photo showed Damon actually comforting his two daughters, Bela and Reyna, after the death of their mother, instead of being, you know, very distant as he is on the show. And then another set of photos appear to show Damon being a chaotic bisexual, flirting with a male servant and then making out with him in the corner of another scene. Wow. (laughs) First reactions. What do we think about this moment, Christian? I'll start with you. You know, that's so funny because Damon is such a, certainly he's a chaotic character. I can testify to the first half of that description for sure. And it's kind of like what we ultimately make of him is is what we get to see. And we certainly see a lot of stuff from him in this latest episode. So, you know, those things being incorporated into the canon of the show would kind of show us sides of him that we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen him, like you said, as a particularly caring father. They, they, the show especially made a point of saying that if he cares about his daughters at all, the only one he's shown any affinity for is the one who's a dragon rider. And we certainly, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of his bisexual side, even though we know that, you know, I don't know if they've called him the Prince of the City. That's his nickname in in Fire and Blood in King's Landing, because, you know, on the trip he took Rhaenyra around, he certainly knows the brothels well. He's out there in the streets. Who knows what he gets up to? But for the most part, you can only judge him based on what you see of him. And then the rest is left up to your imagination. So it's interesting that these scenes were shot and then ultimately not included. Maybe they'll be on a DVD or something, but like those are such different sides to him that I guess you have to kind of keep it to canon at a certain point. There's such an interesting line with canon in this show, right? We'll be talking about in this episode how the show has 
interpret, you know, Fire and Blood leaves a lot of things open based on its structure. It's kind of a choose your own adventure book at certain points because it says, well, this person says this and this person says this, and it's up to you, the reader, which explanation you want to buy. But the show can't do that. So it has to make choices. And, and sometimes it makes different choices than the book did, as we see in this episode. So yeah, then getting into deleted scenes and stuff, that's almost too much to juggle in your mind. And, and at a certain point, I guess you got to keep it to canon. I think possibly it was just the fact that like, we're already introducing the fact that he's married to Lena, which is like, you know, the, the, we only see this marriage for about 10, 15 minutes. So maybe they're just like, this would just be too much complication, you know? And so then that's possibly, I think, where they kept it out. Because it's like, we're already introducing one relationship and two children and, you know, and a death. So perhaps we just have to let our chaotic bisexual king be a little bit less chaotic. So now let's dig in to House of the Dragon, episode seven. For anyone listening in, our ground rules remain the same. In this first portion of the podcast, we're just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective. So that means anything that's already aired on the series up to this point, including in episode seven, as well as anything that's been mentioned in the press so far is fair game to talk about. We'll only really bring in the books if it helps answer basic questions like who the heck is that person? What's going on? What are we missing? Then we'll be switching it up a little bit later on to talk about House of the Dragon as it relates to George R.R. Martin's books and specifically Fire and Blood. And so fair warning to anyone who wants to avoid as much of, you know, the bigger picture as possible um, and any kind of potential book spoilers. And then the final portion of the podcast will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we have two contenders. We are joined by Matthew Needham, who plays Lara Strong, aka Clubfoot. I will also be sharing my interview with Olivia Cook, who plays Allison Hightower, which was conducted back in June 2022 for EW's House of the Dragon cover story and set visit. So let's set the stage for episode seven. Miguel Sapochnik, a co-showrunner on season one, directs it. He directed episodes one and six as well. This is the last episode he directs this season. So we gotta milk it for all it's worth. Kevin Lau is the writer behind this episode. Kevin previously wrote for Westworld, The Nevers, Lovecraft Country. So he's a long HBO veteran. We open on the funeral of Lena Valarian and everyone is gathered at Driftmark. This moment is mentioned in and fire and blood as being like a new Valyria because there were so many dragons present in one place at the same time. Lauren, I know we're always kind of clocking dragons. I think I clocked five. Yeah, I think that's what I counted. Like five, there were five, I think, resting on high tide. Yeah, there's like Cyrax and Caraxes. I think Melise was there, Rhaenys's dragon. And then like a couple other dragons we may not have seen before. Aegon's dragon, Sunfire. Possibly Dreamfire, which is Helena's dragon. I do love that, you know, Allison is supposed to have another child, Daren, and who apparently just doesn't exist. On this yeah, show. they just have decided we have too many, too many uh, princes. Yeah. <laughs> but that was supposed to be another dragon there. And then, of course, Vagar, which is the dragon of the late Lena Valarian. Prince Damon and his daughters are also there. This is the first time in years that Damon has seen his brother. Otto Hightower has since been reinstated as Hand of the King after the death of Harwin Strong and Lionel Strong. And good old Laris, good old Clubfoot, Christian, <laughs> you know, Christian's Clubfoot Corner. He's now Lord of Hall after covertly killing his family. <laughs> The last oh, title that he takes very seriously. He famously loves to spend a lot of time at Harrenhal. 
<laughs> there are so many cool details about just this funeral setting. Lauren, what were some of your biggest takeaways from this opening? Oh, I just love seeing, and it, and it specifically seemed like this is like the Valarian funeral rite. It's, it wasn't really sort of anything we had seen specifically with Game of Thrones. It's not a Targaryen funeral rite because we've seen, we see, saw Emma's earlier in the season. So this is very much like this is how the Valarians, like, you know, her casket was put in water. I mean, and I thought that casket was like beautifully done and everything like that. There were certain words that they were saying that seemed to be very pointed at Rhaenyra and her brown headed children. So uh, it was a very, like, I thought the whole entire right and like, you know, Rhaenys was totally decked out in her mourning gear, you know, and I, I just thought the whole funeral was like very well, like orchestrated. Christian, what about you? You know, one of the things I loved about it is that we've seen a wedding already in this show. We've seen kind of a hunt. We've seen different kinds of parties and gatherings. And I thought that the show did a really good job of showing how funeral drunk is different from wedding drunk. (laughs) And a lot of characters end up drunk at this funeral and not in a fun way. The vibes are not great all around. There's a lot of meaningful looks and not so much a lot of greetings and dialogues and stuff. There is certainly a lot of tensions abounding kind of in all directions. You know, I am starting to get a little bit of a fondness for uh, Prince Aegon because however the greens and the blacks, the conflict ends up, I do just kind of have to respect how much at any time he would rather either be drunk or jacking off than (laughs) doing what his mom and grandpa tell him to be doing. I love that for him. And then Otto Hightower is back. It looks like he's kind of, he's kind of rocking a a quarantine haircut a little bit. Looks like he maybe hasn't (laughs) cut his hair since he got fired. Um, It's really blowing around in the wind there. You know, he kind of says, you know, we, it's been a couple episodes since this has been relevant, but we remember that, he has kind of this long-standing rivalry and enmity with Damon. So, you know, he says something to Damon, kind of some superficial platitude, whatever. And Damon is basically just like, yeah, screw off. I hate you. Yeah, I hate he basically you. calls him a leech who's re- who's back yeah. for another Where Is he wrong? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I kind of think I kind of think of Otto Hightower as one of the the primary villains of this story. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you see Aegon is so not set for leadership or I mean he's just a dumb like 15 year old or whatever at this dad son he's not his mom's son no I mean he is just not suited for leadership at all and these two are just pushing him pushing him pushing him like at this point Joffrey Baratheon seemed like he was more suited to leadership than Aegon (laughs) was and that's saying something but like Aegon you're just like you're pushing this kid like come on guys like maybe uh you know maybe you just back off for a little bit but and it's just the kind of thing, like, you know, Viserys kind of set, kind of asked Lionel Strong a couple episodes ago, he's like, you know, how will they remember me? Because he's he's not a wartime king. He's he's presided over this era of peace that he inherited from his grandfather, Jaehaerys, who's kind of the, the greatest Targaryen king by some accounts. And he's just gotten to, to, to rest on his laurels, basically, and oversee, you know, we would say in our parlance, like, you know, a good economy, like a good kind of status quo. And hasn't had to be tested, and and Aegon's kind of the same. Like if like he would really, he's like I just said, he's his dad's son, and and he would be meant to preside over the same kind of thing. Unfortunately, that's not his lot, and and we can all tell that this conflict is going to come to a boil, and it doesn't necessarily seem like he's suited to be that kind of 
wartime king, although his younger brother clearly has some fire in his belly. That's a little tiny Magor the Cruel right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw the episode and I saw what happened to Aemond, I was like, he deserved it. I, did, I slacked that to Nick. Lauren, you cited Joffrey Baratheon, and I, I think I, I see a lot of Aemond, who I think we can now call by the name I know him by from Fire and Blood, Aemond One-Eye. He really gives me Joffrey vibes. We're going to be digging into that a little bit later. But kind of coming back to the funeral, I think, you know, some things I wanted to bring up is later on in this episode, it'll be made sort of a big deal about the fact that, you know, Targaryens are born of fire, Valarians are born of water. And, you know, we've already had a funeral scene um, with Queen Emma, and that was very much, you know, funeral pyre, fire from the dragon. This is very water-based. Vaemon makes mention of the fact that Valarians have salt in their blood and it's very important to them they come from the ocean they return themselves to the ocean Feynman also references the Merlin King which is this deity that's associated with the ocean and sailors and all of that but uh, speaking of Damon I mean Lauren, you mentioned this, the fact that he has very pointed barbs to throw at Rhaenyra, not so subtle. (laughs) Yeah, no, not so subtle at all. The high Valyrian funeral rites that he gives. And something I want to kind of just make, you know, definitively clear here, because I'm curious how casual viewers of this show are going to be picking up on this, the whole blacks versus the greens. We see in the costumes that Alicent and all of her children are wearing green. Rhaenyra and all of her children are wearing black. Even Damon is wearing black um, to represent these two sides. I don't know if that's been made super clear, though, on the show, because there's a tourney scene in Fire and Blood that really explains the fact that Allison came out in a green outfit, Rainier came out in a black outfit, and that's when the public dubbed all of Allison's supporters the greens and all of Rainier's supporters the blacks. What do you feel about that, Lauren? I think what's really interesting is that Rhaenyra up to this point has not been wearing really red and black at all. She's been wearing gold. She's been wearing different colors. Like her stuff has been trimmed with red sometimes, but she has not been wearing black until this episode. And it's like she has now garbed herself in black. So I really sort of saw that. And, and at that end, that she discussion that she has specifically with Damon that she can't survive this, these attacks of the greens, like I really felt like this was, you know, now Rhaenyra was like cloaking herself in the colors of her house as protection. So I really thought that was interesting because I did notice that before that Rhaenyra had not really been wearing the colors of House Targaryen until this moment, really this moment, like even in her coronation, which like she had different colors kind of going on. But this time it's like she's really cloaked in, in sort of in the colors of her house as well. So I thought that was like a big sort of sign. And there was one shot and we'll get to the, the, the discussions later. It was so obvious where it was like Rhaenyra it was aligned with also like Corliss and like, the, you know, her children and Damon. They were all on one side and they were all cloaked in ba- black. And then it was just like you sort of saw the two separate sides. So like, I think definitively this time, like where you saw how the family's just getting cleaved right in half. Kristen, I don't know how you feel about this because it made me feel like there was no kind of, at least in my recollection on this show so far, there hasn't been really 
oh, these are the greens, these are the blacks. So I'm like, are viewers going to be picking up on this? I don't know. Yeah, I thought the same when when that line of dialogue comes up, and it's a line of dialogue in Valyrian, so you're reading it in subtitles. You know, I've been kind of trying to make a point of that, like, to my girlfriend who's watching and hasn't read Fire and Blood, I, I kind of had to be like, just so you know, like, they're called the greens and the blacks. I think they kind of tried to do it with the last pre-time skip episode, and Alicent making a big deal of showing up in that green dress to Rhaenyra and Lenor's wedding is different than it is in Fire and Blood. And, and Rhaenyra was in a wedding dress, so she didn't kind of have the black dress to match it. Now they're kind of subtly doing it. You know, one thing I would say about this is that it is interesting that of those colors, black is a Targaryen color and green is not. So if you're, you know, as much as obviously the greens make a big deal of the fact that Rhaenyra's children are, are clearly strongs, you know, they're the ones, you know, who are clearly trying to turn kind of the the, the royal house or the coat of arms to theirs, like a, a house of the reach, you know? And it's like, okay, guys, you're not being too subtle about the fact that, and this is why I said that Otto, to me, is one of the main villains, because, and the show made a very fine point of this without overdoing it, that he basically sent his daughter to seduce the grieving king. And like, he clearly has this ambition to make the high towers, the royal house, or like on equal footing with the Targaryens and kind of claiming that your color and the color of the true Targaryen princes or whatever is actually House Hightower's colors. That's a, that's a little ballsy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. You know, Rhaenyra has the blessing of the king and she has the actual colors of House Targaryen. All this may seem kind of silly to us, I guess. You know, maybe it's just, you know, whether it's viewers of the show, it's just a thing, you know, a way to distinguish characters and teams or a reader of the book, like fun to imagine. But like, there's a reason that house colors and house mottos and house insignia mattered back then because it those were important ways of signifying legacy and inheritance and power and stuff. So, you know, even though you happen to be sympathetic to the Greens or, or any characters in the show who might be, you know, they certainly have some some things in their in their argument, but taking a non-Targaryen color as your own kind of shows maybe a little more than they're intending about where they're coming from. A little bit more um, table setting for this episode. Aegon mentions that he's been betrothed to his own sister, Helena, and that's partly why he's getting wasted. <laughs> but also he's very bored just kind of being there. Meanwhile, Jace is fully aware that Harwin Strong is his father, but he's making nice with Bela. Lainor is standing in the middle of the ocean. He's so depressed which angers his father Corliss. I'm assuming because, you know, his son is kind of showing his vulnerable side. He's not dealing with this in the strong Valerian method. Right, that's kind of like he's reading his son's vulnerability as like akin to his homosexuality, which is why his response is to angrily tell Carl in front of everybody, like, go get your boyfriend, bring him to me or whatever. It's like... I don't, is that the move? (laughs) Yeah. There was also a small moment where Corliss goes to his grandson, Luke, and he's telling him he's going to inherit Driftmark. And Luke tells him, I don't want it because if I'm the Lord of Driftmark, it means that everyone's dead, which which felt like a really, I know it was really sad. It felt like a really sobering moment for Corliss though, because you could see on his face, he's like, oh, maybe I should acknowledge the fact that this is a funeral. <laughs> I think also that what was fascinating, and I know we're, we'll get to this, that was that conversation between Corliss and Rhaenys, like after the funeral, where Rhaenys, I'm sorry, Rhaenys was 
basically telling him that he should leave Driftmark to Lena's daughters and not leave it to Lucerys or Luke, who would be in line for it since brother is supposed to be heir to the Iron Throne. And how much conflict there was in between the fact that like Rhaenys obviously knows that those supposedly grandchildren of hers are not her actual grandchildren. And they were, you know, they had that fight about blood versus like, you know, she's like, she's like, you know, these children aren't your blood. And he kind of comes back, you know, people don't remember blood. They remember names. And, and it was kind of very interesting to see where the two of them were, where their heads were at, where it was like, well, these children are carrying my name. So I, you know, for Corliss, he's like, well, they have my name. And so they basically have my protection. Whereas Rhaenys was thinking, these are not my blood, so they shouldn't have our protection. And I thought that was kind of an interesting cleave between the two of them. I thought that was a really fascinating scene. And they both said a lot of interesting things. And I think actually what was most interesting to me is that as much as Rhaenys was saying you know, give it to your actual grandchildren, not your fake ones. What she's also saying is that if you care so much about the fact that I was passed over and that the realm did not respect a woman's right to inherit, if you care about that in and of itself and not just because it meant that you didn't get to be king, then you should pass Driftmark to your daughter's kids because that would respect a, a daughter's right to inherit and and you wouldn't it, it, and he's like well no like i need my grandsons or like he he basically kind of like proves her point you know renice has been a very interesting character who has been kind of relatively uh like kind of sparingly showed to us over the course of the show she she doesn't show up in every episode and she clearly is a little um, melancholy but and we've known even before this that she isn't necessarily as incensed about being passed over for Viserys as her husband is. And I thought that this was a great point of showing why that she's also someone who like, she's like, it happened. It's in the past. You you know, she has this nickname, like the queen that never was or whatever. And she's like, I don't really care about that. She cares about her family and, and her children. And now that her daughter is gone, she cares about her granddaughters. And I thought that that was just kind of a great way of kind of calling out her husband on, you know, as we, as you were saying, Nick, like, kind of getting mad at, at Lenor for being sad and instead of just showing strength or whatever. You know, we get some macho stuff from Corliss in this episode. We And I thought that that scene, which obviously no one else sees except the viewers, it's just a private scene between the two of them, was a great way of showing a little bit of maybe his hypocritical side. And and I thought that was great. I just thought it was a, a really powerful scene for, from characters that we don't get to see a ton, a ton from in the show so far. It also highlights the parallels between Corliss and Viserys. I mean, both are fathers who are who know what's going on. Like Corliss knows that his son is gay. He knows that his grandkids are not Lanors bi- biologically, and yet, just like Viserys, he is choosing actively to kind of ignore that. Which I think, I mean, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but I think that distinction kind of plays a little bit into what is known as the eye for an eye scene and that whole confrontation a little bit later. But before we get into that, let's talk about Rhaenyra and Damon because I mean, we've all kind of read fire and blood. We know, we know what's going on. (laughs) I've been very curious to see how casual viewers will kind of take the fact that, you know, niece and uncle get married. Like that's a thing that happens. And it was sort of, 
I felt like the first part of this episode when Aegon is like, oh yeah, I'm betrothed to my own sister. That was sort of setting up this kernel like, yes, incest is going to be a part (laughs) of this story a little bit more prominently. Lauren, what did you kind of make of all of these sequences between Rhaenyra and Daemon? This is where I do wish that the show was kind of slowing down a little bit more because there was a lot of stuff in this episode. (laughs) And it's like, and in the books, it was like, it wasn't like Damon and Rhaenyra really got it on at Lena's funeral. It was like a like it was within the year, but it wasn't that night. So I kind of wish they had kind of like you know pushed these events a little bit farther apart because you're just like your wife just got buried, man. What are you doing? But the thing is, it's like you do kind of see that, and and I thought this was fascinating where Rhaenyra basically was like you basically just abandoned me. You know, if you had been married to me, we would, I wouldn't have had any of these challenges. Like Allison would not be challenging me right now. If you know, if you didn't just run off and go to Pentos and get married to somebody else, like if I had been your wife, I would be much better protected. And my children would have been like true Targaryen. So I thought that was a whole fascinating thing. And when he says like, you know, you were just a child. And so you sort of see his own sort of, reaction to why he had not pursued that when they when she was younger so i thought that whole conversation was super fascinating i really wish though it was not pitch black when they were like i it definitely looks like they put day a day for night filter on it and at a certain point i was like i cannot tell what's going on in the scene like literally i had to put like i was trying to like block the light from my computer because i was like what's going on in this scene i think someone's having sex i'm not sure you know so that was very much like gosh come on like you know so that was a little bit of my frustration was that this entire conversation was supposed to be having happening on a darkly lit beach and it was just like this is very dark i can't see this an interesting thing that ryan condal um the series co-creator and co-showrunner said about young rainera and damon's incestuous moment in the brothel which she's kind of that's what she means kind of by abandoning her a little bit yeah so ryan said quote what damon does to young Rhaenyra is in modern terminology an act of abuse and as a traumatic event would it shapes who Rhaenyra becomes so I think you know it it seems like they are actively that's part of the approach to kind of this relationship is that she does have that traumatic mental psychological abuse from that moment and she it's stuck with her and now it's affecting this kind of union christian as a fan of you know fire and blood and these books what did you kind of make of how this whole sequence was treated in house of the dragon you know even more so like you know as a reader of fire and blood I, I've expected this this partnership to materialize at some point. But I think the show has really kind of hand, made it its own and handled it in its own way. And when I was watching this scene, I was really thinking about the history of the show, how it's played across these episodes so far. And like Lauren, you mentioned, you were talking about Rhaenyra getting really mad at, at Damon for quote unquote abandoning her and stuff. And a great facet of this storytelling, there's a little dramatic irony because we as the viewers know that one of the reasons that he abandoned her is because Viserys threw him on the floor in front of the Iron Throne, surrounded by Kingsguard, and was like, don't touch my daughter. Yeah, and and Damon was like, I'm going to marry her, I'll marry her right now, and Viserys was the one who really kicked him out. He was like, get the hell out of Westeros, yeah, so it's like... And he doesn't tell Rhaenyra that because he's also kind of a macho guy and doesn't doesn't really like to admit that, you know, times he was one-upped or whatever. But I thought that that was, you know, I, I've loved that. And, you know, and not to go out of order on you, Nick, but but as as this, maybe not as relevant to kind of their, their sex scene and the chemistry they have, 
but how their partnership kind of flourishes throughout the episode, I think a major important part, it's a little moment, but one that I definitely clocked and that I think is important is, is in the eye for an eye scene in the throne room when everybody's attacking each other and, and Allison is getting in everybody's faces and pulling out her knife. And the first thing she does is call for Kristen Cole and Kristen Cole help him because Damon is there to shoulder check yeah. him. Damon totally like blocked him. And I was just like, that's what you want in your husband. You want him to like protect you. And, you and know. like Viserys and, and Corliss, as you're saying, maybe trying to kind of paper over these obvious uh, facts or whatever and, and act like everything's okay. But Allison and Rhaenyra are strategizing. And Rhaenyra knows that she needs some kind of equivalent for Kristen Cole. And as recently as a couple weeks ago, Harwin Strong could have been that. We saw him beating the crap out of Kristen Cole in the yard. And now, of course, Harwin's gone. So, you know, these women are not dumb and, and they definitely are the the power players on their respective sides. But they know that they need some muscly men around them to, to fight their opponents, muscly men. And if you're going to go to war with Allison, that means you're going to go to war with Kristen Cole. And that means that you need some some strong guys on your side. So, you know, the, 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 the sex scene is in, and, and, their, and their chemistry is kind of its own thing. But I think that when that moment happens, it's kind of the clear marker to her that, okay, I need to actually certify this, this alliance and this partnership with Damon because I need him on my side if this conflict is going to continue. So let's dig into the eye for an eye scene, which was by far, I watched, oh my God, I rewatched this. You said you watched it like five times, yeah. It's so good. Before the sequence, you know, Rhaenyra mentions to Damon on the beach of Driftmark, she says something along the lines of, I don't believe Allison is capable of cold-blooded murder. And that's in reference to the death of Lionel and Harwin Strong. Setting the stage, but then, I mean, that all kind of, you know, changes with the eye for an eye scene. Um, and setting the stage for this, Aemond really wants a dragon. He goes out to bind himself to Vagar, who is riderless after the death of Lena, in which he does. And I really enjoyed this sequence. It reminded me a lot of Harry Potter with Buckbeast. I was, just kind I of, was thinking I the, the same, same thing. thing. I was like, this is what John riding the, you know, Regal should have been like, not that what, what we got. And just kind of leaning into the joy of dragons. I think one of all, all our kind of collective gripe about House of Dragons so far is we need more dragons. We love those dragons. And this was really just leaning into the joy, the thrill of a kid riding Vagar, even if it nearly killed him. I mean, he almost fell off that thing a couple of times. But Bela and Reyna wake up Jace because they see this and they think someone has stolen Vagar. Vagar, I love the fact that they emphasize the fact that Vagar was their mother's dragon and it was supposed to pass to Bela. And the fact that Aemond has now bonded with Vagar against anyone's wishes, he wasn't supposed to do this, is really an insult to Lena's memory and to House Valarian. Lena's memory was getting insulted all over the place that night. <laughs> Literally. No, absolutely. And then, so the kids go out and confront Aemond, and Aemond is a jackass about this. Like I said, he's a Joffrey Baratheon. Yeah, yeah, pretty I much. Mean, I mean, yeah, Lauren, you mentioned that he totally deserved to have his eye cut out, and he absolutely did. He says, well, your mother's dead. Vagar has a new rider. And then it's really a fight. It's like four on one, but Aemond is significantly bigger than all of these other kids, significantly stronger. It gets to the point where he's 
um, it looks like he's going to kill Luke. And he's calling Luke and Jace bastard. He, oh, Luke doesn't know, does he, Jace? And it's just really riling everybody up to the point where Jace takes out a knife from his sleeve. He drops it in the scuffle. Luke picks it up and slashes Eamon's eye out. And then this leads to this whole sequence of events. Because then the King's Guard come upon them. Which is, where were the King's Guard before this? <laughs> That's exactly what Viserys says. Are you freaking kidding me? What do I pay you for? And maybe, look, maybe it was a conscious choice by Kristen Cole, who, because Harold Westerling, he was like, yeah, I'm I'm not protecting the queen because Viserys told me I didn't have to. So the King's Guard is yours, Kristen. Maybe Kristen did see this and maybe this was an active choice to not stop. I was fascinated by Harold Westerling and this whole entire thing, because like, even when Allison called Kristen, Harold kind of was like, he's like, don't you dare, don't you dare. And then it was like, just like Grant McTavish's face in this entire scene. Like he didn't have to say much, but you knew he was like, oh my God, what is going on here? But this is definitely, it gave me so many parallels to Game of Thrones season one when Arya's direwolf, Nymeria, attacks Joffrey for being a dick. And Cersei's out here demanding retribution. Oh my god, there was just so much good stuff. Lauren, like, what were kind of your biggest takeaways from the sequence? Oh, just like the whole thing, like I think, you know, I thought Olivia Cook Cook was excellent in this scene because you really just saw like, Allison loses her goddamn mind in this scene. Even when Viserys is like, give it up. This is settled. And she just keeps going and going and going until she winds up basically stabbing Rhaenyra and then you just see the shame like that you know she's always been you know always been did what she did and now she just basically stabbed the princess of Dragonstone and I I thought was really interesting when she's just like you know she just was she just would not let it go she was in a rage she was in and then it was like finally like once the like the the blood was shed she just finally seemed to like snap out of it but she was just in, you know, and it was very interesting to see how, like, you know, even like Rainis, who was, doesn't seem to be the biggest fan of Renera, was she was siding with like her grandchildren, and, and just the fact that you know Amon was such a little bastard in this entire scene, you know, and, and just like all the things that like happened that like you know all of a sudden like Renera and Damon came in together, and Renera's kind of like a little like her hair's a little messed up, and you know, and then da- Damon just kind of hangs back. And until he needs to step in with Christian, Kristen and it's sort of like, and Viserys is like just trying to quell the chaos that's going, but his like wife will not, not give it up. And I, I just thought it was a great scene. Like it was like, you know, it, it, it was a different scene than what is in fire and blood, but I thought it, they made it so much better than what it was. Yeah. To recap a little bit, Amond definitely loses an eye that Maester cannot save that eye, e- even though he's stitched up a little bit. Allison is losing her mind because now her own son has been physically harmed, scarred for life. Um, she doesn't there's even like no him. fixing this. She doesn't even like him. No one likes still, him. He's awful. Yeah, he's awful. All of her children are awful. I kind of like Aegon, but Aemon sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone is scrambling for answers specifically the king king viserys he wants to know what happened it's really four kids against one aemond and yet aemond still has like w- the loudest voice in the room when it comes to this jace tells rhaenyra that aemond called him bastards rhaenyra makes that known to everyone there which sends viserys into a tizzy and he ba- he says after all of this i mean he gets he tracks 
the rumor back to Aegon, even though he sees Aemon looking at his mother. And I think Viserys knows his mother was the one who's been spreading this. And then, but it gets to Aegon and Aegon says, everybody knows father. Like we have eyes, we can see it. And so Viserys declares if anyone, no matter who it is, brings up this rumor again about the illegitimacy of his grandchildren, he's going to cut out their tongue. That moment kind of reminded me of one of my favorite Christmas movies, A Christmas Story, when Ralphie uh, says the F word in, uh, in front of his dad and later his mom is interrogating him and she calls like the neighbor or whatever and she's like, and do you know where he heard it? And the woman on the other line is like, probably from his father. (laughs) These kids are afraid to, you know, blame their parents or whatever because they know their parents will get mad at them. So So Eamon, even though we all know it's from his mom, passes the baton to his older brother, says it's Aegon. Aegon, who, as always, doesn't want to be there, doesn't care about these politics, resents being drawn into this by his brother. And who doesn't really care that his cousins are bastards? He's just like, whatever, I don't care. I don't care, whatever. Okay, you're bringing me, where did I hear it? I don't know, look at him. And I did just want to make this point, which is because there's been a, 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 you know, maybe a little more aimed at, at Rings of Power, but... There's been this discourse since these shows premiered about the the black actors and black characters playing them because it's not necessarily made clear in Fire and Blood that the Valerians are black, but they are in the show. And and it lends a fascinating level of depth and and subtext to this whole thing, because and especially because the characters never say it, but but partially because they don't have the same racial categories we do because they're a different continent in a fantasy world hundreds of years away. But they're just like, they could have just like, how do I know they're bastards? Well, they're not like, like, like look at Lena's daughters. Like they're not, they're clearly not Valerians. And yet no one says that. And, 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 and people, the, the patriarchs like Corliss and Viserys, you know, who just want to see what they want to see and, and ignore all this stuff. But we as the viewers can can see that other level of, of, of subtext to it. And then you also, kind of, again, like I said, it's not the same racial categories as all. So what marks Jace and Luke and people as as bastards, as, as baseborn, as like less than their aristocratic cousins is that they're not black, you know, is like kind of thing how this all plays in this world. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that those those were some things that brought up. And overall, I think this scene is just kind of the result of what happens when you, you, you there are things you can't repress forever that they're going to. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit with Lenor. Like there's things that you try to push down and try to not talk about. But but in a in a fiery, f- flagrant political time, these things are going to blow up eventually. And, you know, Viserys is trying as hard as he can using all his authority to get people to not talk about this stuff so they can't talk about it openly, but it's going to come out in these heated moments, you know, whether it's the fight between the kids or in this bigger fight between the adults that results from that. And then also you see a, a personal version of it with Alicent, which is, as she kind of says, she has had to repress her whole being for like her whole life. You know, I think in those first couple episodes, you can detect some affinity, maybe sexual, maybe just platonic between her and Rhaenyra and whatever that was, they, Alison was never able to act on it. And she was brought into this marriage with Viserys that her father certainly wanted and pushed her into, but she never asked for or wanted. And so she's kind of sitting here like, I've done my duty my whole life. And I've never complained and I've never asked for anything. And now on top of that, you're 
you're hurting my kids, which are like, you know, as Corliss says at a different part in the episode, in, in this world where all you have is like your life and like, you know, you may not be able to seize the things that you want for yourself in your life, but you can you can make things better for your kids or, or hope that your kids can do it. So like that's kind of this blows her top that there's so much that she's kind of had to pr- push down and repress and do what she's told. And so this is just a bridge too far for her. You know, I really I really like Olivia Cook's performance. No insult to, to Emily Carey because they're playing this character at kind of different stages of her life. But she's really kind of making me understand Allison more than I do in the books and, 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 you know, sympathize with her a little bit. And I, and this is just, yeah, an incredible scene and incredible performance from her. Yeah. And especially when she has the point where she has cat spot in there and she's just like hissing, like I've done everything I was supposed to do. And like, just like all of that rage is coming out and like, you know, and, and when Rhaenyra just shoots back, now everybody's going to see what you're really like. <laughs> it's just like, oh, this is so good between the two of these. And again, if only they had talked about this stuff 15 years ago, you know, like, uh, but they, but they didn't, they, they repressed it. And now it blows up in these, in these awful violent ways. I love that you can see this different stages of Allison's spiral in this moment. Viserys basically tells her, you know, oh, grandkids, apologize to each other and let's move on from this. And she says that's not good enough. And she has this amazing sequence of lines where she says, if the king will not seek justice, the queen will. And then commands Kristen Cole to take out the eye of Luke, which sends everybody (laughs) propelled to the next phase of this whole tornado of chaos that is erupting. But even then, as Viserys starts to argue against her, she screams at him. She says, no, you are sworn to me. Which I think ever that was another stage where everyone took a step back. And even Viserys was like, I can't believe you just screamed at your king and said that. So then, you know, just to recap what Lauren kind of you brought up, Viserys tries to squash it, or at least he says it's squashed. And we're all just going to move on from this. And then Alicent grabs the cat's paw dagger or Viserys's Valyrian dagger from his pouch and charges at Rhaenyra. And what I love about this whole choreographed circle that kind of emerges around Alicent and Rhaenyra in this moment is that nobody can really touch either of them. You know, Sir Kristen Cole is the only one that actually tries to make a move to protect Allison, but then Damon obviously steps in and stops him. Damon stops him first, and then the other Kingsguard grab him, but they might not have. They might not have gotten to him first because they don't know what to do. But it really emphasized that Allison is really the Greens' biggest weapon against Rhaenyra because she is queen. No one in that room, even the most powerful men, are willing to stop her or are willing to touch her. And so it leads to this very climactic blowout where, Lauren, you said Allison cuts Rhaenyra's arm. And even like when the maester is stitching up her arm later on, it was very visually reminiscent to the stitch across Aemon's eye. But then Aemon, kind of, as they're all kind of collectively watching the blood flow 
from Rhaenyra's arm. Aemon steps in and he's like, do not mourn me, mother. It was worth it because I got a dragon out of it. Yeah. And not just any dragon. This is Vagar, the biggest, oldest, arguably the most powerful next to Caraxes dragon that currently exists in this world. So the greens really got... <laughs> A, a big glare. weapon. And that's what like and that's interesting because that's what Otto says. We got Vagar on our side now, and Rhaenyra sees that as they're all, you know, they're leaving the Greens party leaving back to King's Landing, and you see Vagar flying behind the ship, and he she really kind of dwarfs the other dragons because Caraxes isn't there, but Vagar is very big. But still Vagar's bigger than Caraxes. I mean Vagar's bigger than Caraxes, so will we ever will we ever see how they compare to each other? Who knows? Maybe tale for yeah. another time. But I thought that was super fascinating after the eye for the eye scene where you know, she you could just see like Allison is ashamed of her behavior and Otto comes to see her and she's like, Yeah, I know, I've looked really screwed up. And you know, and that was almost the moment when someone could have gotten into her head and being like, Yeah, you need to calm down, lady, you know, and Otto just pours the grease in and lights the fire and you're just like, Otto, like you're just you're just gonna every everybody is doomed from this point on it's just like what are you doing as he's been doing for years for her whole yeah. life pouring poison yeah. in her ears wait why does she why is she so utterly convinced of this idea that she then passes on to her sons that if Rhaenyra is queen that she'll kill you all it's all him that's what he said and so you're just like Otto one other element of an eye for an eye that I want to bring up is Corliss through all of this. I found kind of branching off of what we were talking about earlier with his discussion with Rhaenys. I mean, there, Alicent makes a joke about how Lenor isn't there because he's off, you know, fooling around with whatever servant. Kristen laughs at the joke. Corliss doesn't say anything. He's a, this is, he is the second most powerful person in Westeros apart from the crown. And this is all happening in High Tide, his castle at Driftmark. And he is such a passive player through all of this. I don't know. I really enjoyed kind of like the internal performance that Steve Toussaint was giving in this moment. It felt like everything was, everything that he feared about like coming out about his kid and his grandkids was kind of all swirling around this room. And it felt like he was really paralyzed by this whole thing. Right. He's, he's coming into this conversation. He's coming into this scene off of that conversation with Rainus, which as we said, was really kind of cutting each other to the bone and, and him in particular. And then Nick, as you said, how can he chastise them for saying it when he did it himself at the funeral and, and said, hey, go get go get your boyfriend, my son, get him out of the water, bring him up here in front of everybody. Like, you know, it seems like he really resents his son or, or is ashamed of him in some ways, which is a shame because as we saw in the war in the step zones and as Lenor talks about, Lenor's an amazing warrior. He's a dragon rider. He is... He is everything that you would think the son of the sea snake would want. He's a sailor. He's a dragon rider. He's a warrior. But he hasn't made kids of his own. And and this show has done such a good job of showing how sometimes that's what matters in this world. And I thought that was, there was like 
that beautiful scene between Lenor and Rhaenyra after all of this happened and Lenor's like, uh, what just happened? What did I miss? Like, you know, I, you know, and, and she's just like, I wish I could have had your children, but it just, you know, it didn't work out. And who knows, considering the fact that they were cousins, there could have just been a biological reason that they didn't have, you know, children. And, and the fact that like they physically like, you know, their, their genes just might not have meshed with each other and hers with Harwin did. And, but I thought that whole scene was super, like, just beautiful about, like, all of the regret. And they had gone into this relationship with the best of intentions, but it just, like, it just didn't, like, they tried, but they, you know, and, but that they, they, they seem to have figured out a way to coexist peacefully with each other. And she thought he was a good man. And it's just, like, all of these outside forces just kind of tearing, tearing them apart. And I thought that was just a beautiful scene of the two of them together. And I, I loved that because I did have that question last week. I was like, you know, couldn't he, couldn't they have tried? Couldn't he have gotten it up like once a year or whatever, just to have kids. And then they go off and, and uh, screw whoever Speak they want. For yourself, you know? <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> I, I'm glad that they, that they referenced it. Yeah. I'm glad that they said, they said we made the attempt. It's not like we didn't, but you know, it could have just, and, you know, and sometimes it's like the, the genetics, who knows? They don't even have the terms for this stuff. I, I, you guys may have talked about this before. I've talked about it with my girlfriend. I'm sure when Rhaenyra was hooking up with Harwin, her assumption was that her kids were going to look like her no matter what. Because her dad's kids all look like him. And the fact that the Hightower genes are recessive or whatever and get overwritten by Targaryen genes, but the strong genes don't, and they're like Baratheon genes or whatever, they overwrite whatever they come in contact yeah, with. or whenever a Targaryen married a Baratheon, there would be a black-haired Targaryen because we know Baratheon's black hair overrules everything. But like, yeah, it's just sort of like- And the Strongs are clearly kind of a similar thing. But they, you know, the uh, maesters, they don't have t- terms for that. They barely know how to give you anesthetic. Like, <laughs> you know- or to heal a common cut on your hand, for God's sake. He's lost the vagaries of fate or whatever. And then, you know, then the other thing is like, and, and then on top of that, you obviously have just the most cursed beginning imaginable to this relationship. Like that horrible cursed wedding. And maybe it would be different if Joffrey had been alive. Maybe they could have done a threesome or something. Lenor may have been in a different mental place if Joffrey was still alive. Or he had kind of a, a longtime boyfriend instead of, you know, what the other characters allege that he just kind of goes from guy to guy or whoever. He can, I'm sure he was drinking for a while and was very sad about Joffrey to the point that he wants to name one of his kids after him. So yeah, it's just, you know, they went in with the best of intentions and just, it's not how, it's not how the cards played. It's not how the dice landed. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to get into the aftermath of this chaotic blowout. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. (laughs) 
And we're back with EW's West of Westeros podcast, this time without Lauren Morgan. It's just Christian Holub and myself. Scheduling podcasts is a real full-time job here <laughs> over at EW. But yeah, Christian, let's take this time. And we're going to be talking about the last portion of the episode, episode seven of House of the Dragon. But let's now bring in the books to kind of talk about the show in relation to what is on the page in Fire and Blood. So the eye for an eye scene was a major moment because not only did it prove to Rhaenyra that Allison maybe is capable of cold-blooded murder like she kind of talked about or alluded to in the beginning of this episode, but it also made very clear that everyone knows the fact that her children are illegitimate. They are not the sons of Laenor Valarian, her husband, even though the king, you know, is like, if you talk about this, if you bring this up again, I'm going to cut out your tongue. But the king is only going to be alive for so long. And I think Rhaenyra knows this. He's got a cane. He's coughing. He, he's not looking great in that uh, in the in the cab to the ship at the end. You know, there's only so much he can do. And and one of the things about this world and this series is that like, yeah, you know, you're. You know, we see from Corliss in this episode, he's he's very concerned about what becomes of his family and stuff after he's dead. And there's only so much influence you can exert while you're alive. And when you're dead, it's not up to you anymore. And Lenor, I mean, we were kind of talking about this a little bit before the break, but Lenor, I think, is also feeling like he's let Rhaenyra down in a lot of ways. I mean, he was kind of, he was just really in his grief at the moment. He was not present during this big nighttime blowout. So he comes to Rhaenyra in the morning as she's getting stitched up. They have a private moment. And he even says like, Ugh, they're, they're, they're talking a lot about the what ifs. I mean, that I think just based on our what we're, we've been talking about this whole episode is there's a lot of what ifs that kind of come up during the course of episode seven. Oh, what if I just married Damon instead of Lanor and we had pure-blooded Targaryen children? Would things have been different? What if Allison played the game a little bit differently? What if she didn't listen to Otto so much? What if she did, you know, was what if she wasn't so perfect all the time? What would that have looked like? Would it have changed things? And so now Lenor is talking to Rhaenyra, like, I wish the gods didn't make me this way. But Rhaenyra... Oh, that's so sad. But Rhaenyra being an ally is like, oh, well, I don't wish that. You're an honorable man with a good heart, and that is rare to find, which I love. And he's a good boy. He's a warrior. Yeah, like, he's someone who, who you would want on your side in a conflict you know i would think and and it's just this stupid truly you know a word that maybe sometimes we overuse in the modern day but is so relevant to this setting heteronormative like it's a world that depends on heterosexual procreation and and if lanor was a second son or whatever you know like it, it would be fine like it wouldn't really matter what he did he could be like uh, the Blackfish, you know, in Game of Thrones, who my interpretation of that character has always been that that he was gay and that he didn't really care about, you know, propagating his line or whatever. And that's why he was able to go be this badass warrior or whatever, because he had an older brother who could be the, the Lord of Riverrun and all that. That's a little bit of a tangent, but I think you know what I'm saying. Like, there's just all these kind of things and it's not and, and you know, there's a lot of characters who are guilty and have shame about stuff, but it's all these things interacting and it's not always your fault and it's not always up to you. And maybe getting into what you wanted to talk about in, in terms of how closely this hues to fire and blood, you know, the Aemon, the eye for an eye scene 
is a major scene in Fire and Blood. One way we know that it is, is it has a Douglas Wheatley illustration to go along with it. There's a there's a picture in the book of Luke cutting out Eamon's eye, which is how you know it's a big moment. But the ending of this and, and Lenor's ultimate fate is a is a break from what happens in Fire in the Blood. And I think a very pleasant way, especially this episode that's been so intense and so violent and so, as you're saying, makes us and the characters think about how could this have gone differently? How could it have been better? But it's too late now or whatever. And here we we get a, a moment of characters making things better or making the best of things. And in, in, in I think kind of a, a sweet little uh, ending note to this otherwise a pretty bleak episode. So let's talk about that a little bit just to kind of table set, as I've been saying, this whole discussion. So Rhaenyra is very aware that the, her children's legitimacy is being constantly called into question no matter what her father says after the eye for an eye sequence she watches alicent and all of her family sail away now vagar amond is riding vagar alongside aegon on sunfire and i i think that's helena on dreamfire her own dragon that would make sense yeah. and so rhaenyra gives <laughs> she offers a plan of action to Damon because she knows that if she is married to Damon, then perhaps those questions of legitimacy are going to be dulled at least for the time being, if they have their own children or like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. He has Caraxes. She has Cyrax, two of the most powerful dragons in this, in this time period, apart from Vagar, of course, but Damon can't marry Rhaenyra unless Lenor is dead. And that's when the episode starts to make you think, oh, they are orchestrating the assassination of Lenor. They're going to go to his current lover, Carl, and be like, oh, we can give you all this gold and you can make a life for yourself across the narrow sea. It doesn't matter what your house is, what your name is. And it seems like Carl is going along with it until the very end when Corliss and Rainey storm into throne room of high tide and they see what they think is the body of Lenor being burned alive in their fireplace. His face is completely charred. You can't make him out, but a squire or a servant, I, for, I, I couldn't tell which was, kind of saw them, Carl and Lenor fighting with swords in the throne room already and ran off to get help, yada, yada, yada. We find out in the final moment of this that Lenor is alive and he's going off to be gay across the narrow sea <laughs> with Carl. And they've got all this gold and they're going to be merry. He's even shaved off his Valarian hair, shaved head, and he's just trying to disappear into the world. And Christian, you mentioned, I mean, this is very different from how it is in the books. How does it play out in Fire and Blood? So I have it right here. So I can pull it up. Anybody at home, it's page 379 of, of the hardcover. And the way that it's described is basically the way that it seems to be happening, which is that Lenor and Carl are going on a trip to Spice Town, which hasn't been made a lot of in the show, but is the port town of Driftmark, separate from the, you know, there's the castle High Tide. But there's also this like c port city, as there are at all the ports in Westeros. There's King's Landing, there's Lannisport on the west, there's Old Town, where the high towers are from, White Harbor up in the north. Those are, These are all kind of cities, and the only cities in Westeros basically, basically exist around harbors and trade. And Spice Town is the one in Driftmark, and it's called that because you're you're getting you know the sea snake has been all over, and you're getting kind of the Marco Polo spices from Essos and stuff. So they go there. He goes there with Carl. 
and Carl stabs him and kills him. And there are witnesses that testify to it. And there's a body that his father, the sea snake comes to collect. And again, as we've said a lot, fire and blood does not always give you definitive explanations of things because of the way it's written by a historian saying, well, this source says this, this source says this. And, you know, so in this case, it's like one person says that it's jealousy and that Carl thinks that Lenore has taken a different favorite, you know, that that's kind of the word in Fire and Blood for uh, same sex partners. They call them favorites of the lords and ladies because there's a couple throughout there's a couple (laughs) throughout Targaryen history. And then the other the other theory is that Damon pays him to do it. And even one crazy, crazy theory is that the sea snake himself, Corliss himself, hired the dispatch of his son because he was so ashamed of, you know, the the questionable parentage of his kids. And and as I think this episode made clear, you know, his his macho kind of patriarchness, he's just kind of he doesn't love that his son is is gay. And what's interesting about this is you could through about 80 percent of this episode, you could see a couple of these kind of playing out like. Oh, you know, as I was thinking, like, oh, you know, maybe Lenor will tell Carl what he's telling Ramira and that he's like, okay, playtime's over and I'm dedicating myself to my family and, and stuff. And Carl gets mad about that and stabs him. Uh, we see Damon talking with Carl in his hood. Damon in the hood, never a good sign. Not a good sign when you see Damon's hood, <laughs> hood up. Bad news. And and he's telling Carl, you know, I'll pay you a lot. You're a knight. I'll pay you a lot of gold to do this. Uh, that's one of the theories in Fire and Blood is that Damon did it to open the way to marrying Rhaenyra. And instead, they fake the death and get off. Now, here's the question I have for you, Nick. Do you think Rhaenyra and Damon know that this is how it went down or did they hire Carl to kill him and Carl and Lenor came up with this scheme and went away on their own? I think they know that it went down like this because Damon has a line that he tells Rhaenyra sort of in the voiceover of all these sequences. He says, we all know the truth, but our enemies won't. And then Rhaenyra after that says, they will fear what else we might be capable of. So they want they want their enemies to think that they've killed Lenor because it'll show their enemies that they can do any that they're willing to do anything. That's my interpretation of it. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. It was I I, I didn't get the chance to 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 rewind it and and watch it. But yeah, it's because it's because obviously the, it, the 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 show is trying to mislead you a little bit and to make you think it's going one way and then pull that great last minute switch on you. So, like I said, I'm very pleased. You know, I like that. It, it, and you know, it's kind of the same with to get into a little of of Christian's clubfoot corner here. Like that, it's similar the fire the fire at Heron Hall. And you talked to Ryan Condal about this. I know that the fire at Heron Hall is is one of these things that has a bunch of different explanations in the book and Laris being responsible is like the third or fourth explanation. Like it's yeah. not really like I was kind of shocked by it in the show because even though it totally makes sense and it is exactly the kind of thing that Laris would do, you know, it's not out of character for him or anything, but it's just the, the book doesn't make a point of it. And, and that's, and so there are, that's just kind of the thing. Of, I love Fire and Blood and I love House of the Dragon and I am really enjoying the ways that that they diverge and, you know, the, the choices that the show makes that, that the book leaves open. Yeah, it, I think it also, for better or worse, I mean, it does kind of open the door because to kind of like questions are, oh, are all of these choices for the show 
actually necessary because i mean listen it's game of thrones it's going to draw a lot of criticism like good and bad no matter what you kind of do but you know there the death of joffrey i think was a big one like oh is this just perpetrating more of the game of thrones and just you know general fantasy tropes of killing your gaze kind of you know the equivalent of fridging which you know happened a lot in the original game of thrones like gay people aren't allowed to be happy But then also just the ways in which it handled these early episodes of House of the Dragon, like handled certain female relationships. Like, does it always have to be animalistic? Is that really how it would authentically kind of play out? And I know that there are kind of benchmarks in Fire and Blood that the show is like trying to hit. But as we've kind of seen with this episode, you know, they've really remixed a lot of it. Like the book makes it definitively clear that Carl kills Lenore in front of witnesses in Spice Town. But this is happening at Driftmark, like as Corliss and Rhaenys kind of stumble upon their son's body. In my own bleeping hall. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it does kind of open that door to be like, oh, are all the choices on this show so far kind of necessary? I don't know. How do you feel about that, Christian? Well, you mentioned you mentioned the Joffrey thing, which happens in Fire and Blood, but happens in a pretty different context, which is in Fire and Blood, the Knight of Kisses is killed by Kristen Cole in the context of a tournament where there's like plausible deniability, you know, like that violence happens, as we saw in kind of the, the tournament in the first episode where we first met Kristen. Those things get bloody. And 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 even if something bad happens, y- you can't really question it because it's like, well, you know, it's it's boxing, you know, to quote Rocky, you know, the Rocky movies, you know, if he dies, he dies. Like it's a it's a bloody business. But beating him to death in in front so brutally in front of witnesses at a wedding you know, that's probably one of the most aggressive changes that the show has made from Fire and Blood and particularly kind of raises the question of how does he get away with that? Like, because in a tournament, you have plausible deniability in a wedding. You really don't, you know, and and you and I know you asked Ryan Condal about this and, and he kind of explained as the show does in a few scenes like, well, basically, Allison becomes his champion and then vouches for him. And as a result, he becomes her champion. And 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 those two are kind of a, a, a partnership. My girlfriend has been asking, like, if they'll ever hook up at a certain point. And I will, <laughs> I'll be interested to see that, you know, after uh, after Viserys dies, if, if they ever get it going on or or. But both those characters are kind of sexually traumatized, actually, in, in their own ways. So so maybe it's bad. Maybe that's what they get out of their friendship is that it's kind of an asexual alliance that they have. And to speak of all that, I think that and, and you know, bury your gaze. Uh, I, 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 you know, I understood that discourse. And and it was one of those things where, like, what happens to Joffrey is very upsetting. Like and and it's natural to be upset because you're supposed to be upset because it's very upsetting. And, and like we've kind of been discussing Throughout this recording, when it comes to Lenor and and this heteronormative patriarchal society that's built around procreation, it, it really it, it punishes and degrades and destroys people who don't fit this model of 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 male female marriages that produce children, and it ruins women who can't procreate, and it ruins gay guys or you know queer people. And that's part of what the story is illustrating about how wretched this society is. And if we see similarities to our own, as, you know, I think we most powerfully do in in the the birth scenes, then at our time of, you know, uh, infringing on abortion rights and stuff, I think that that sends a really powerful message. But I do love that 
this book that, that that the show took a different choice here and it made that one choice with Joffrey and Kristen made it more aggressive, more upsetting this this violent this you know heteronormative violence against gay men. And here took the opposite tack and and showed them kind of getting away with it and getting to live their lives. And, and you know, they're not going to uh, a land of flowers or, or milk and honey or whatever. They're going to fight. Like, that's what they love. They're going to, you know, swing swords and kill people and and also have sex with each other. And, and that's great for them. And so I like I like that, that, you know, I think that there's that this, this story is really good at, at showing the violence of this society and, and sometimes the ways it matches on our own. But I think it's also important to show that that it doesn't have to be that way and, and people can make other choices and you can you can make efforts to kind of subvert or circumvent kind of these the, the, the pressures of this patriarchal heteronormative society. And, and you and there is room to to make your own life, so to speak. So. So I was really, I was really surprised by this change, probably more so, and and pleasantly surprised in in a way that I think most of the changes that the show has made to, to Fire and Blood, or at least maybe my memory or interpretation of Fire and Blood, have been dark or upsetting or violent or whatever, like the fire at Heron Hall or or the beating of Joffrey. And this is a this is a nice one. It's a change for the better. And you know, I don't necessarily expect that we'll see Lainor again because we certainly don't in Fire and Blood where he's just dead. It would be nice if, if you know, sea smoke comes out of nowhere in uh, in season three or whatever. But, you know, it's a nice it's a nice ending for him that they get to ride off into the into the sunset sea together. He and Carl are riding sea smoke, bringing their child to private school in <laughs> Essos. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I really liked this change. It did make me wonder about Corliss and Rhaenys, though, because if the part of this plan is to get the message across to their enemies that Rhaenyra and Damon are capable of anything, then what are the father and mother of Laenor going to think when they see that Rhaenyra marries Damon? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's supposed to be a time jump between their marriage at the end of this episode and sort of, you know, Allison and all of her brood kind of leaving Driftmark. But it's very short after the death of Lanor in the context of House of the Dragon. And listen, I mean, it makes clear at the end of this episode that both sides, both the Greens and the Blacks, are now rallying their allies. They're arming and they're preparing for war. No matter what Viserys wants, they know what the game is. They've let each other know what they're in for and and they're setting up their pieces. They're They're building their military units and stuff. Yeah, Aemond has Vagar. Alicent goes to Laris and basically says, even though she was disgusted by his actions in the previous episode, she's like, your loyalty hasn't gone unnoticed, and I'm sure there will come a day when I need an ally like you. And then part of the marriage to Damon is Rhaenyra rallying her forces and gaining more power on her side with Damon and Caraxes. I think maybe the explanation to Corlys and Rhaenys, like Rhaenyra can say, like, we're still part of the family. Like, Damon's daughters are your granddaughters, and we know Rhaenys cares deeply for her granddaughters. And so I'm doing this to bring them closer to me and to protect them better, you know? Like, I, I even though... It seems like that this that their partnership is kind of scorning the Valerians in a way. I think there's a way to sell it to them as doubling down and and protecting them and and their heirs and stuff too. I think that's how you sell it. 
And I just want to note again, there's so much wonderful dramatic irony. You know, one of the reasons, you know, Rhaenyra saying Allison's capable of anything. She's such a cold-blooded killer because she believes that it was her orders that the fire at Hall that killed the Strongs. And we know that she didn't, that she did not order that and was horrified by it. And Laris took the initiative. And now we're kind of getting the opposite of that, which is Allison's going to be like, oh my God, Rhaenyra ordered the death of her husband. She's capable of anything, even though she didn't. And she let her husband go live his wonderful gay life because she's an ally, like you said. <laughs> like, there's just, it's just, you know, this is a show. Sorry to spoil. This is a show about war. And it's a show that is going to highlight the tragedies of war. And I think one of them is all these misinterpretations and, and missed opportunities to kind of be honest or whatever, that your, your enemy isn't as bad as, as you think they are. Or at the very least, your enemy isn't always who you think it is. And that when it comes to the Greens or whatever, Allison is, is just a human. And, you know, I think that the main villains on the green side are Otto Hightower, her dad, who's, you know, or Laris, but that's, or Laris, but that's the clubfoot genius, baby. Like you never know (laughs) that he's the one doing it. And, you know, it's great for her that she thinks he's an ally and she can depend on him. All I'll say to the viewers who are familiar with Game of Thrones is that not for nothing is his name a combination of Littlefinger and Varys, you know? Not for nothing is his name, like, the couple name of Littlefinger and Varys, Laris. Like, I don't know if you should trust him as far as you can throw him. That's why I love him. And, you know, if you're if you're looking at Rhaenyra, you know, the the person you should fear or be scared of is, is Daemon or whatever, you know? Like, so as we're building closer and closer to war, and, and I think a couple more years will pass before we get there, it's, 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 it's I think, worth taking note of, of all the ways that this show is, is showing us the, the misinterpretations and the, and the lies and the exaggerations that feed war as much as the, as the honest real politique. I actually asked Matthew Needham, who plays Laris, about the Laris Varus, <laughs> so, <laughs> the name similarity. He, he had a funny response, which we'll share a little bit later on this podcast. But as a, sort of a final note, I loved the, you know, as context aside, I love the fact that this episode starts at a funeral. Everyone's in black mourning. It's about death. And it ends in a wedding everyone oh Rhaenyra and Damon are in white I was also trying to go back into the books and see pick up as many details as I possibly could about Valyrian wedding traditions I I think Lauren had pinpointed something back in the day of Magar or Magor and it it seems we know the ceremony involves fire it involves blood which is also you know a wonderful uh, call out to the fire and blood text that this whole thing is based on. But I thought just like seeing that kind of ceremony and all the details there were kind of cool. What did you make of that, Christian? I loved that. You know, I loved the blood kind of being put into it. It reminded me of, I know I'm bringing up a ton of references this episode. It reminded me of uh, in Naruto, the summoning in order to summon an animal demon to help you. You you need (laughs) blood. And so usually what they do is they like, bite their thumb or whatever and so that the cutting the lip with the stone to kind of make easy blood that way reminded me of that i thought that it was it's kind of nice because it's exotic you know and and it's maybe not similar to how weddings are usually done in westeros because part of the story of aegon's conquest and stuff is that is that the targaryens have kind of accommodated themselves to the westerosi andal tradition of the seven gods which is not something that the valyrians particularly care about 
And so this was kind of doing it this way, you know, and not in a sept or whatever, but just uh, out in the open air is is kind of a way of, of testifying to their Valyrian blood and their Targaryenness as much as to their dedication. You know, there are, are a couple notes I wanted to make before we wrapped up. One is since this is the last, as you said, the last episode directed by Miguel Sapochnik, and the last time I was on was right after the news broke that he was stepping down as co-showrunner going forward. And I said that I really respected him as a stylist. And I think one thing that's really interesting is that his firsthand stylistic imprint on this on this show, House of the Dragon, has been pretty different from what he brought to Game of Thrones as a director. Game of Thrones, famously, he directed the major battle episodes, starting with Hard Home going into, you know, the final season, The Long Night, The Bells, best episode ever, the stuff like that. He was really, he was giving you Battle of the Bastards. He gave you those big battle episodes and he was really good at, at that, depicting that violence and both the scale of it and the intimacy of it. And yet aside from the, the melee, the tournament in the first episode, he really hasn't been directing or depicting violence or battles in the show, especially, you know, the war might kind of break out by the end of the season, or it might really be a season two thing after he's kind of gone. Otherwise, you know, and there have been battles this season, but like the, the fight with the crab feeder and stuff, he wasn't directing those episodes. The episodes he directed were last week's, which had a lot of gruesome birth scenes, like the first episode, which even though it had that tournament melee, I think we can all agree that the most violent, brutal, bloody scene in that first episode is the forced birth of Queen Emma. And in this episode, it's just a lot of personal, you know, there's the, you know, I guess there's the kid fight with the, the eye for an eye scene and stuff. But I really respect that from him and 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 admire that he's kind of stretching himself and showing different things. And and there wasn't like a birth scene in this, but there's this weddings, you know, which, like you said, kind of tainted by blood and violence in its own way. This this Damon Rhaenyra wedding. I think that's really cool that 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 he's put his style and, and his skills to to directing different kinds of scenes than he did in Game of Thrones. And, and in particularly showing how with these parallels, things like weddings and births and funerals and stuff in this world are in their way just as violent as the actual battles and the actual killing. Christian, we have three more episodes left this season. Next week is episode eight, which I was actually on set for. So if anyone who joins us next week, I can share a little bit more about what I actually saw on oh, set. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Everything that went down. But for now, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren Morgan, who joined us earlier in this podcast. Yeah, thank you, guys. Love the show House of the Dragon. Love the show West of Westeros. And, if you know, hopefully... All the listeners of this show like themselves some fantasy TV. Uh, you can find me every week on uh, All Rings Considered, EW's podcast that covers Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I know Nick's a big fan. So, you know, why aren't all of you? Uh, um, you can hear me there every <laughs> week instead of my little uh, celebrity cameos uh, over on this feed. <laughs> no C-sections on the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Exactly. Speaking of things that aren't on that show. Yeah, all the stuff I just talked about. <laughs> Although this is a little bit of a battle, you know, hmm, not spoiling anything, but <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'm going to be sharing my interviews with Matthew Needham and Olivia Cook, who play Lara Strong and Allison Hightower. Stay tuned.
I'm so glad we could make this work today. I, I truly believe you are doing something the most interesting work on House of the Dragon so far. It's been really a treat to watch. That's very um, kind of you, Nick. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm curious what you knew about this character to start with. Because he's really not, at least in this time period of House of the Dragon, he's not really mentioned in the books at all. It seems like you guys are really taking this character and running with it in a very big way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a very sort of shadowy figure in the books, isn't he? And I think Ryan's done a brilliant job. Ryan and all our writers really have done a brilliant job at just slightly lifting him off the page a bit more and just fleshing him out. I didn't know anything at all. I hadn't read the books. I was going just off the, the scripts that, that I had. And there were sort of twists and turns that came came along later, which I didn't anticipate. So, no, I, I knew I knew nothing going in, which I think is quite quite helpful, really. Just the scripts that they gave me. Yeah. So you could bring sort of like your own impressions to this character. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there's lots of suggestions in there, and obviously, we had Miguel and Ryan were the most helpful people. It just sort of really. Sort of, sort of shaping the character on its feet, which was so wonderful, actually. Trying things out in takes. We had the luxury to sort of find it and let it come sort of organically, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. It was really exciting and really collaborative and really enjoyable, actually. What sorts of things did you try out that ended up working for this character? It's more a sort of, sort of tonal thing, I, I suppose. We'd sort of try it lots of different ways, really. Sometimes a bit back foot, and sometimes it's sort of in- enjoyable. Sometimes it's relaxed. Sometimes sort of found that the most sort of satisfying and enjoyable to sort of do and sort of more, more interesting was playing him quite plight, you know, sort of to sort of fight against any sort of darkness that he was doing, actually, to do it quite sort of matter of fact and quite politely seemed enjoyable. I don't know when we were doing it. It was like that's and that feels sort of crunchy. You know, it feels like satisfying to do. We sort of tried a, a number of ways, really. So it's sort of interesting to see what they end up using. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spoke with Ryan the other week, and I found it interesting that his kind of big takeaway from reading about this character in Fire and Blood, he said, "Oh, I always knew Laris was a schemer." I'm curious what Ryan and Miguel first talked about with you when you took over the role and you were kind of going over this character. It's it's a hard one because the sort of the the enjoyable parts I find of this character in the books anyway is the sort of the mystery box element of him of where you're you're not entirely sure why he's doing what he is and it's why it makes sort of interviews quite hard because I'd I'd love to maintain that slight mystery box aspect of him until until do you know what i mean if you start explaining away things it suddenly becomes less interesting that was something i was always sort of interested in is keeping the man who's out of focus and then he slowly comes into focus and i don't know if he's fully in focus yet does that make any sense I think I'm following you. Yeah, but yeah. and that that kind of leads me to a follow up question. I mean, I, I know there's only so much you can talk about or even want to talk about, but in your mind, in your approach to this character, do you feel that Laris does 
does have sort of a master plan in mind all along? Or did your approach kind of really, was your approach really contingent on this sort of enigmatic quality that this character has? I, I think you can't, I think he's got a, a, a plan. I think he's got a direction. I think you, you can't sort of be just enigmatic for enigmatic sake, you know, just sure. sort of lounging around smirking with no nowhere to go. That'd be awful. And no, I think he's got a, a strong direction and something he's trying to um, achieve. You know, I think he's a, it's an incredible character that, that they've created this man who acts on the world. You know, he, mm. he acts on the world and he makes things happen despite looking like he couldn't hurt a fly. No, I think he's got, I think he knows where he wants to go. I think he's got plans and I think he's had sort of, well, all his life to sort of come up with it. You know, he's been waiting for these for these things to happen all his life so he, he's prepared i mean he makes obviously such a bold move in episode mm. six when he tasks those men on death row to kill his own family essentially yeah and yeah. what when you came across that moment in the script what was your big takeaway from that did it did it kind of help inform your overall kind of impression of this character yeah i mean it's a very specific you know, there's a there's a type of person who who could do that, right? To to sort of be able to justify that homicide for the good of, you know, uh, the the queen, you know, for to give her what she wants, but to also secure his position. I mean, it's brutal, it's ruthless. Yeah, it's like this guy's a a dark dark animal. Yeah, very informative. It's a, yeah, it's a terrifying act of will that he. He, he's able to to do when you give that face i think uh, i think it's sort of in that later scene in episode six between laris and allison when you give sort of uh just the facial response to her being horrified you know it, mm. it kind of gives this evokes a sense of madness almost but i was wondering right. if you if that was intentional that you were kind of lean, leaning into the fact that maybe this character is a bit mad or if you had some kind of intention with that. No, I'm not playing it. I, I don't, I mean, I don't think he's mad, but I, you know, I, I, that's not what I'm playing. I think what I love about that scene and what I love doing it with Olivia is as much as it's a power move and it's him putting her squarely in his pocket, it, there's also an element of the game of you get to, I will do all this i will get all this blood on my hands and you are able to plead naivety mm. uh, you uh, being allisant is able to act all innocent and i think it's that sort of i wouldn't say it's romantic but there's almost a there's a sort of underlying of uh, it's not erotic but there, there's there's some sort of frisson there i think for Laris anyway she gets to say, I didn't want this, I didn't want this. And I know that she did. And I get to be like, you get, you can say, you can pretend to be all innocent, but really we know what we're talking about. You and I have this unspoken bond. So that's what I thought I was playing at. That's what I was think I was going for in those scenes. It's this sort of we're both on the same side here. But obviously, just look mad. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just mad. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because even as I'm sort of listening to you talk about the character, 
just when I say the name Laris so fast, I sometimes will accidentally call him Varus. Oh yeah, yeah. Kind of, and so in my mind, I'm 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 seeing these kind of parallels between you know our old master of whispers on Game of Thrones and his character now. I, was that sort of a direct parallel for you in thinking about Laris? You know, obviously, it's it, that's not an accident, is it? So he's a George R. R. Martin is an extraordinarily intelligent man. I don't think he would make a mistake like that. That's a very purposeful thing. So ignore it at your peril. But I do think that you know it's a mixture of Varys and Littlefinger. That is n- no accident. But I do think they're three remarkably different people. I wouldn't want to comment on either of, of those under wonderful actors' performances, but I do think their characters are different, but they share a sort of, I don't know, a sort of murky underworld of the mind. Conleth Hill's actually one of the, the one of the reasons I'm I'm an actor. I saw him in loads of plays growing up and he I just thought he was absolutely magic. So I owe Conleth Hill a lot actually. Well, I wanted to ask you too, because Steve Toussaint told me that he auditioned for House of the Dragon with Tywin Lannister dialogue. And then mm. Olivia Cook said she auditioned with Cersei Lannister dialogue. And Millie Alcock, I believe she said she used Arya Stark dialogue. So I was curious if there was sort of in any of the sides for the audition, if there was kind of a character from Game of Thrones that you were reading for. No, it was all Laris. It was all Laris all of the time. It was. Uh, two scenes. I'm trying to think if they've all been, but yeah, it was two. It was two two scenes that I, we we have then filmed and done. So no, it was, that's so funny that they're doing. It's like with the when people audition for James Bond, don't they always do? Is it a scene from Doctor No? They always do the audition with the same scene. It's a bit like that, isn't it? But I never had that. We, I, I just did Laris scenes. That's so interesting that they did it with Game of Thrones stuff. I think it's kind of naturally, you know, formed a lot of parallels between characters in House of the Dragon and characters in Game of Thrones yeah. for a lot of people. And with Laris, I think it's, you know, it's easy to call out the Varys parallel or even yeah. kind of like the little finger parallel. I was curious if you felt those parallels were, were warranted or if you feel like Laris is doing something a bit more unique in sort of this situation. Well, I don't know if he's doing something unique. I just think they're three very unique people. But of course, the chaos is a ladder way of life, you know, is something that they, they share. But I, I do, I, I mean, I, personally like i didn't go and st- those wonderful actors I'd, and performances but i didn't go and study them i just felt like this is just a new thing you know it's it's so it's its own beast and it's different writers and it might be in the same world but it just felt like a different show you know i, I don't think i would be doing anyone a favor by sort of trying to replicate someone else's performance because it's been done beyond perfectly by those guys and it's a different character you know i don't think either of those guys burnt their family alive <laughs> yeah. i'm sure they did other horrible things but but he, he's his own strange guy i think he's he's on his own path yeah it's been so cool to just watch this show and pick up all of the little pieces to this character, like from the very moment that Laris kind of chooses to sit down among the women at the royal oh, yeah. party. 
Like everything <laughs> seems so premeditated. It's like everything yeah. he's doing feels like it's one more piece of the puzzle that he's yeah. fitting it together. Did that was that sort of a big takeaway for you yeah, when you were kind of reading the scripts? I think so. Yeah, it's just. And I mean, it's it's so funny to watch it again, and then you go, it's sort of genius editing. You know, so much of the story is just genius editing. The way that the show's been constructed and put together, and sort of genius plot point. That's why I don't think he's mad. You know, I I think it's very deliberate, and I think he's very unique. But I I, I don't think he's mad at all. It's sort of scarier if he's not mad. I don't know that someone. Oh, I don't know. That's just my theory, anyway. But um, again, again, it's like it's up to everyone else to sort of make up. That's the sort of the mystery, sort of the puzzle box thing is so satisfying because really, it's whatever you think is uh, is as valid as what I think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I love it. I have one more question for you. So, I mean, this interview will be coming out after episode seven, and there was that. I mean, you have that great moment with Allison, sort of on the ship, sort of at the end of that scene. And Laris makes it very clear, like, I thought it was very telling that he was like, oh, like, do you want an eye? I'll go fetch you an eye. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this guy, man, woman, or even child, he does not care. <laughs> He's yeah. Do it. Was that sort of another big milestone for you in understanding just how far this character is? Yeah. Be? Yeah. This guy, there's nothing he won't do, you know, yeah. and that's a really useful, the, there is nothing he won't do. And for, I mean, I don't want to speak for the brilliant Olivia Cook, but that's an interesting person to have on your side, maybe. You know, yeah, there's nothing he won't do. Do you think this is setting up for him to be a more active player in sort of the events to that are going to transpire in season one? I'm afraid you would have to ask Ryan that, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> you know, if I, if I survive, who knows? Love it. Very diplomatic, I will take it. Hey, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm a politician, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matthew, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, sir. It's lovely speaking to you. You as well. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. It was funny, though. I was just re-watching Thoroughbreds the other week. And oh, you and I... You and Anya are so good in that movie. I love it so much. Does it feel like such a lifetime ago that you made that? I feel like not only a lifetime ago, like five different people ago. I was 22. and I know it's only six years ago, but God, I feel like so much life has happened since then. And I feel like also everyone's got like a personality pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic as well. That feels like a bit of a severance in consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, but yeah that feels such a and we also we only shot it for four weeks and so it was a proper blink and you miss it experience but I've got so many fond memories of that time because we had the big house that we all like we shot the the majority of the movie in and then we lived in a a motel that was just a five minute walk away from the from the house and so we sort of like lived in this bubble for a month it was amazing like proper independent filmmaking but just at its best it was funny because in a way that movie reminded me a lot of being on set of house of the dragon because it felt like you guys had cultivated this very like intimate collaborative environment i, I was curious if it felt that way to you yeah for sure i think like actors don't really have a problem finding this makeshift 
community. We're all a bit nomadic in spirit. And so we can just like shape shift and just come together and it feels really collegiate and feels like this makeshift theatre troupe. And so on on a massive scale, on the complete opposite end of thoroughbreds, it do, it did feel like that. I mean, like it was it was so I didn't I didn't get to see uh, your single uh, low scenes with um, but I did see Amelia and Matt, and it was so cool to see them like tackle a Emma. scene. Oh, Emma, sorry. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, I didn't slip there. <laughs> I need, uh, I know, I need, a, I was, it was funny, I was talking to HBO, I'm like, I need flashcards for every single character and I just need to drill them into my mind. It took me, it took me probably like, you know, six months into the job to be like, oh, okay, these, these are all the names that's all sounds so similar. These are the people that are playing them. Also, some of the characters have three people playing them, you know? So it's just, it is, it is a head fuck. Where did you, I mean, there's so much mythology in this show, so many characters. I mean, where did you kind of start and kind of orienting yourself around this whole project? I read the 10 Eps. Then I went back and watched Game of Thrones. Then I read the book, House of the Dragon is based on. And it was really, I think with the 10, the 10 eps of, of this series and with the, with the book and, you know, wherever we choose to then go on beyond 10 eps, it feels like a really complementary piece of art, vice versa, in terms of like, you know, you can, you can read the book and then you've got this sort of like 10 eps fleshed out version of one strand of the hearsay piece of history, or you can watch watch the the TV show and then complement that with reading the book and have like a more in-depth knowledge of all the political dramas within the the family. So if that is a, a very broad stroke, succinct answer to, yeah. <laughs> to the question, without pissing anyone off. No, yeah. No, it, it's so funny. I've had to be very careful about spoilers, too, because obviously what I saw on set, I can't necessarily write about <laughs> right yeah. off the bat. It's, it's No, and you came and watched, like, such a fucking big fucking moment within the story as well. Had you read the book before? Did you know what was going to happen? Or is that a massive spoiler for you? No, I, I did read the book. I wanted to get sort of the broad strokes of it. but And that was like really fun too, because it's like, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but it's like you when you're reading the book, you don't know what's fact. You don't really know what's fiction yeah. or has been manipulated for history. It's predominantly men that are writing the history. You've got Mushroom, you've got the Maester, and then you've got this omniscient character who's trying to find the faction fact and fiction between the two so what has been wonderful I think is that you can take a strand of the history and then completely embellish it you know it's not like we're going to get in trouble for a, a comma being missing <laughs> in the story that we're telling so it's you know I think it's been quite not to speak for them but I think it's been quite thrilling to decipher what part of history they're going to tell and then also you know the day-to-day of it all there's big chunks of the the book where Rhaenyra and Alison are just missing and then there's just like a like a a line and so to flesh out what they were doing within the castle and within the the political atmosphere is quite fun yeah I mean 
when I was reading Fire and Blood, and it was so funny because I've, I've talked, I've spoken with a few of your castmates at this point, and some of them were just like, ah, I really didn't want to read this book. I really just wanted to focus on the scripts. But it's it's been interesting to hear about everybody's approach to like the with the book and their relationship to it. And for Allison specifically, I mean, she gets a pretty bad rap in the book. She comes across as this kind of master manipulator. But as I gather, there's a lot more layers to her. I mean, do you feel like she's kind of a misunderstood character in some ways? I do. And then you can also understand why she was written like that, you know, in the course of history and especially, you know, more mid- medieval history that this is loosely based on, you know, the the woman whispering into a powerful man's ear has never been positively written about or or enacted. So you know, I understand, in a way, why why she gets a bad rap. So the, the fun was to try and find the nuance. And, you know, she's been completely hermetically sealed in this kingdom with her dad having this, like, you know, complete indoctrination mission to mould her into, you know, the, this perfect vessel for his ascension to power, basically. And then, you know, it was really fun... And I think Emily did that beautifully in her, in what I got to see of of her performance with Alison. And then as she gets older, you're you're seeing her struggle with her actually like her womanhood and the power that she does have to play that is completely separate from her husband or her father or her even her children. So, and also just moralistically where she stands when she isn't listening to her father anymore. Mm. It's quite fun, fun to play. Yeah, what what is that relationship like with Allison and her father? I get the sense that, or my interpretation of it was that she does love him. And she does feel a sense of responsibility to her house and to her family. But maybe without, you know, spoiling anything, maybe she is somewhat hesitant to do some of the things that are asked of her. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, I think so. And I think also the realization that she has been a, a pawn in her her father's plotting for such a long time and her pure love for her father her her daughter father love hasn't been reciprocal in that way and that's tough when you realize that you haven't been nurtured in the way that Rhaenyra has her best friend that she's seen grow up and have everything given to her and had the unbridled love of her father and she's the complete apple of his eye. And so when you've got that comparison, that is a real, you know, tough pill to swallow. It's something that stood out to me and just speaking to everybody, including including Ryan and Miguel, mm-hmm. is this idea that this show explores, and you touched on it a little bit, uh, the, the idea of women's bodies being used as political pawns, especially during times of war. I mean, when you were sort of getting, you know, your directives for this season and just like getting all of this information about how to approach this character, like, did you internalize that at all? Or um, was that? I mean, God, our bodies continue to be politicized, you know, so it's interesting (laughs) playing a character that is in a, that is, God, I don't know, I don't know in, in today's standard how long ago it is, but, you know, like medieval and how those things are still going on where Alison has been completely bred to breed and to breed powerful men. And that's her only 
that's her only function in this life. You know, she can tell herself that it, she's going to sway and nurture and persuade in a very like womanly, feminine way. But it's all fucking bullshit. You know, unless you're fighting like the men, then you'll never be heard. And so, yeah, I mean, it's learning to live within this straight jacket of oppression. You know, how do I just like so, like move inch by inch every single day to like loosen the straps a little bit? Yeah, when I when I spoke with Emily, she said that she didn't really have a whole lot of contact with you and that it almost felt like younger Alicent was kind of like a different character in some respects to older Alicent. Yeah. So, so I was curious for you, like what was really important for you just kind of mentally approaching this character, emotionally approaching this character? What was important for you to like bring out in this adult version? What was really good was that I was shown almost like memories. I was shown scenes that Emily had done with Paddy or with her father, just so I had those memories just locked in my brain for when I'm doing a a scene that sort of mirrors that relationship, but 10 years on or 15 years on or whenever it is. And I think it's this power in finding your, your womanhood and also this and how she's been bittered and twisted over time and how she it's so hard because it's so like instinctive and so it's so hard to find like the it's so hard hard to try and intellectualize how what your process is or how you you deal with each specific character but I think it's Mm -hmm. it's trying to find this this pendulum of power and how to measure that and how to to deal with the emotion that she has been repressing for such a long time and I think that she finds that in the vehicle of Rhaenyra and the comparison that they've had this whole time and how there is a complete chasm in their relationship and what I found, I thought was Alison's first love, Rhaenyra, and how Rhaenyra can just get away with anything and she's and it's so fine. She can have illegitimate children and whatever, the king, her husband, turns a, a complete blind eye where Alicent has always had to walk this tightrope for the for for her whole entire life. And and just the injustice of it that she feels until you know things happen. And she, she realized that none of it fucking matters. She looks around her family and they're all fucked up. And she's like, none of it fucking matters. I've been perfect. I've been perfect. I've been so perfect all my life. I haven't taken a step wrong and it doesn't fucking matter. And so I think what we see in her evolution (laughs) is this just like complete existential crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, something that when I was on set and talking to the HBO publicist, she said about Allison that maybe you might come into the show feeling like she's a villain. And as you go on, she comes to like, you warm up to her in a lot of ways. I was curious, as you were sort of like reading through the scripts and digesting this character arc, if she changed in your mind, like, or mm-hmm. if your relationship to her kind of changed as the show went oh, on. It's funny, because I never never saw her as a baddie. But then people would come up to me like, you're playing such a bitch. And I was like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I feel like in order to play someone, you've got to try and find that, you know, that humanitarian hook. And I don't want to justify some of the things 
that she does, but I want to try and understand it and at least then feel like, oh God, in any other circumstance with these specific parameters, you know, if I just dialed this switch up in me, then maybe I would react in this way as well. And so just trying to find that semblance of truth within the character and within within the surroundings and it's quite hard. <laughs> but I mean you've got a you've I mean because she does do some fucking despicable stuff, but then you've got to think she's trying to protect her son, who's going to be the future king. She's trying to uphold the patriarchy. She's trying to uphold the legitimacy of the crown. All these things that she feels are so much bigger than she is. And then I think that's why when she can't control that, she turns to faith more as some sort of tangible element of control because she doesn't have any in her life whatsoever. And her kids are all fucking weird. Yeah, I mean, the patriarchy, it's a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, dude. And it's funny because, like, Miguel and Ryan always wanted, always kept saying to me, you know, she's like a woman for Trump, a woman for Trump. But I just didn't want to give them any more mental real estate than they already had. So, like, I tried to find, like, a different a different route into her. But I couldn't see what they're saying with this complete indoctrination and denial of their own autonomy and rights. But... I just couldn't be asked like going down that road. I mean, did you have any sort of like specific images in your head to play off of, whether they were historical or fictional characters? No, I just went off the text and the book and then probably sprinkled a lot of me in there as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I didn't, didn't really, no, not for this one. Pretty, pretty on the page. What elements, uh, personal elements from you did you sprinkle in here? I think that... I mean, look, in every single character, you're always dialing up and dialing down bits of yourself. But again, it's like so, it's so instinctive that I'm like, I don't know what I did, actually. I just, I just did it. Um, (laughs) I think that's totally fair, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. We'll go with that. Because I actually, I'll I'll start saying stuff and I know I'll be making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm wondering, did you have sort of a different, you know, working relationship with Emma versus someone like Reese when you think of the different character dynamics that Allison has? No, no, it was very, no one was method really on this job. When I, me and Emma hit off right away. And so before we started the job, we'd had these long walks in, in Hampstead Heath, just talking about it all. And then also just talking about in what ways we can protect ourselves in this, you know, big old thing that we're about to do. And then Reese just is like the funniest person in the world. And so I had to say to him on so many occasions, don't look at me, don't look at me. And then he'd be, and I'd, and I'd be like trying to concentrate so hard. I could see him in the corner of my eye going like this, <laughs> like that. <laughs> it, was just, it was, it was amazing and delicious, but also hell working, <laughs> working with him. Cause he's just, he, he just, he just got my number straight away and knew what buttons to press. Whereas like we, me and Em would do a scene and it'd be so, it'd be so emotionally charged Whereas the scenes with Reese, I'm just trying my hardest not to laugh. And usually when Fabian's involved as well, because Fabian got the shit end of Reese's stick. Oh, but then sometimes there, there was there was there was scenes where it was just Reese and I, and it was fine. And then Reese would would go back to Fabian and was like, "See, Fabian, we can do it. It's your fault." <laughs> 
<laughs> I will never forget on set when I was talking to Reese and he was like, yeah, everyone wants the hand job. Like thinking about Otto. And I'm just like, oh my God. He's so quick. He's so dirty, but he's so fucking quick with it. Oh God. He's <laughs> towards the end. He was like, Fabian, Fabian. Fabian be like, what Reese? And he'd be like, ever thought about playing a teenage werewolf? And then would call him like Teen Wolf for three weeks. Like Teen Wolf, come here. <laughs> I mean, where did that come from? Was he just like watching, you know, American Werewolf in Paris or something and was like, Fabian, you're a werewolf? <laughs> oh, no, I don't know how his mind works. I just don't know. <laughs> just things just come to him. He's so, he's just got such funny bones and I think everyone who was in a scene with Reese really really struggled yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm terrible because I if someone so much as goes like that to me I will like start giggling it's maybe it says a lot about my lack of concentration but I do try <laughs> well I, I this is so refreshing I love that because I mean when I think of just about you know my own experience just trying to get to set that like felt like a miracle and then there were so many protocols that I had to go through oh God, so yeah. it's glad to know that like there was some you know you could cut the tension with <laughs> all the humor because you're there for like 14 hours a day it's cold the the scenes that you're doing they're not light-hearted and so you have to cut the tension somehow otherwise you'd just be depressed yeah i would i'd certainly be depressed and i need when, when, once we like once they say cut i need to be able to just let off some steam not in a disruptive way hopefully but <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what was sort of uh like your routine like day to day god depending on the day but usually if we're in top top of the morning getting picks up at five driving to set, which was like 45 to an hour away, two hours, maybe an hour and a half in hair and makeup, breakfast, rehearse on set, then get dressed on set. Then you're just there until they say wrap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're just hanging out in the cast tent. Just There was a really good snack table, actually. So, God, the amount of chocolate bars that I ate. And just <laughs> every day, Reese would come in and look at the table and be like, no, we're not doing that today. And then... <laughs> By 2 p.m. he's got like a double decker like rammed down his throat <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was just but it just telling stories with each other and, and also like doing the work which you know was the majority of the time but yeah depending on the scene but we stopped we shot the scenes for like two weeks sometimes so you've got to have a giggle otherwise you just go mad what kind of stories would you tell each other oh just you know like embarrassing audition stories things about our love life you know family you really get into it like you after the end of a job especially a job that long you just know everything about these people because you spend more time with them than you do your own friends and family and I think that's I mean at least for me that's part of the connection that's then really easy to imbue when you're on screen is that you've already done the work in the cast tent just having a natter I love that that's so cool yeah yeah but it's like that on I mean I'm on a job now I'm in Albany and just went for a massive walk with one of the actors and we just and literally just before then and we just you come back and you're like oh I've just told you everything about myself <laughs> <laughs> absolutely everything I have nothing I have nothing left and 
but you but you you know you work with i've only worked with him for a week and all of a sudden you're like oh we're, we're pals now like i'll come and stay i'll come and visit and stay with you it's quite lovely when that happens how did the comfortability at the end of the shoot compared to when you first got there? Oh, it's just, <laughs> just complete opposite ends of the spectrum. When I mean, I we already knew that we were working with really nice people, and Miguel had had Emma and I round the dinner before we started shooting. Before we even start, like four months before we started rehearsals, and so that was nice. That was like a like a a base of commonality. And then after you've done three weeks of rehearsals initially, because I find rehearsals initially quite mortifying because I'm like, oh God, I've got to act in front of all these strangers now. I'm so embarrassed. After you've done that, you kind of feel quite free. And then we were taken to Cornwall to shoot for three weeks. And then when you're away from home and you're just getting dinner with each other every night, that again is like another layer that's removed. And so by the end of the year, I mean, God, we were just fucking skeletal. We had nothing left to give. <laughs> But it was good. And then we, it's just, they're just pals now. You know what I mean? And and it's its really lovely. And, and you know, we've got this press tour that we're about to do, which is quite daunting. But I'm so happy that it's with them because we can just take the piss out of it all and just know that we've all got each other. And it's like, we can, if we ever feel uncomfortable, we can just give each other a look and be like, let's go, you know. So it's, it is lovely. You mentioned the dinner with Ryan and Miguel and Emma. What do you remember mm. from that? What did, you, what did you guys talk about? Not the show. I remember me and Emma coming out and being like, oh, we just talked about like our families and 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 like Miguel and Ryan's kids were now relocated in London and dif- their different schools. So we just talk about that. And we're like, oh, but we should really talk about the job at some point. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was nice to just initially just meet those guys and not talk talk shop or talk work at all. Yeah, we just had a nice, a nice dinner. I was I was late because I'd just rushed back from another job. And it was still COVID times, but I completely forgot. And I just gave up, gave everyone a hug. And I think everyone's like, whoa. I was like, oh, no, I did get tested today. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but, it's so, but it's so funny that we're just like, oh, no, we can't hug, even though I'm just meeting you for the first time and I'm in your house. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really lovely and not worky at all. Mm. When you did have the more, you know, worky kind of focused conversations with Ryan and Miguel, I'm curious, like, what your biggest questions for them were, were just like, when you were first starting this? I think it was just more like the Alison's trajectory and trying to map that out and where the shifts are and what changes for her and what is she repressing and what is the truth in that and what is she she trying what is she trying to convince herself of? And a lot of that is just geared towards this hurt that she feels with Rhaenyra. It's such an old, old wound. And I think it's like the first proper heartbreak and the first only heartbreak that she's had because it was such a pure love. And I think a lot of us have that. Those just first influential friendships that that become severed at a certain point. And it is just harrowing because there is a bit of you that breaks off. And also just, they're still so young. Like when you first meet my character, she's got three kids She's 27, 28, and she's got, and two of them are teenagers. Like, it's grim. It's fucking grim. And so and so she's grown up with these children that are essentially her siblings. And how does that then show itself in her mothering towards them? And it's not great. 
<laughs> I know when you it's it's crazy. I feel like the older I get, the more I'm like forced to explore like the loss of friendships. And like in some ways it can feel even more of a hurt than the loss of love. Yeah, yeah, massively. Cause there's so much that you don't get closure over like you would with a romantic relationship. And also just she was her only friend and she's so lonely. She's got all these men around her that just want a piece of her or want to use her in a specific way, but no one actually has her best interest. And it's just a really lonely existence. Like even her own kids don't have a connection with her. Do you think that that idea of love lost is something that helped anchor you in this role, no matter all the craziness that kind of gets on in the show? Love lost, heartbreak, trying to fill the void, loss of power loss of control did she ever have any power to begin with all those sort of themes you know she looks like the most powerful woman in the kingdom but she's fucking not who's pulling the strings really let's go back all the way to the very beginning of this experience for you when did you even like first hear about the opportunity to join house of the dragon i first got the audition sent through august 2020 a lifetime ago so yeah like in the thick of it you know and that was right when things were just starting to kick up again so I think that was like my second audition that I'd had in the pandemic and you know I hadn't watched Game of Thrones but my manager who is the biggest Game of Thrones fan in the world was just like this is gonna be amazing Olivia and then I read the sides and and I can't remember if I was sent a script at that point. I don't think I was, but I auditioned for it. And then I auditioned for Rhaenyra because I think all the women were auditioning for Rhaenyra initially. And then they sent me through Alison's tape. So I auditioned for that. Then I think I auditioned again for Rhaenyra. And then, and then, and then I spoke with Miguel and Ryan on Zoom. And then I did one more audition for Alison, I think. And then they put me on hold for six, six, seven weeks. So I, so I couldn't get another job or accept another job while they were deliberating on me and trying to figure out where they were going to place people and what worked. And then yet yeah, in October, like mid-October, that's when I got the call <laughs> saying, saying, <laughs> saying that I got the job. So it was a lot. It was long-winded. I mean, when you talk about going from auditioning for Rhaenyra to Allison to back to Rhaenyra. Yeah. Like, have you had a comparable experience like that in your audition career? Only when I did, when I auditioned for Ready Player One, I did a round of auditions in LA. Well, I did I did my initial audition with, with the casting director. Then I flew to LA to do chemistry reads with the boys and then flew back to New York to do chemistry reads with other boys, a different configuration of boys, then got brought in to read the script then was told I got the part. And then in the new, a few months later, then I did another round of chemistry reads with prospective boys, but I already had the job. So that was like quite long-winded <laughs> as well. <laughs> but, you know, with this one, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't see anyone in person and I didn't have any, any chemistry reads over Zoom. So it did feel quite isolated. And but that was the nature of the world we were, we were living in. You know, it wasn't, physically possible to to do that so I wonder if it would have been a bit different if we had been in the room because also you do you do feel you know you do start to feel a bit desperate after a while and I hate feeling desperate <laughs> you're just like do they like me do they want me you know um <laughs> but, but I mean fucking hell the nature of our job 
is feeling those things every once in a while. And then, you know, I was lucky enough that it worked out this time. I mean, in that hiatus, when you were waiting for an answer, I mean, was that difficult? Like, were you getting other offers at that time for other jobs? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, was, <laughs> there was one thing, I think, that was going to go, this Netflix thing, but then I think it all fell, fell through anyway. So and I was so whatever, you know, I didn't really didn't really mind i went to i went on holiday i went to sicily it was um there was a gorgeous gorgeous window of time where we could travel from england to italy and so i just did a tour around sicily while i was waiting and i was like i don't care i'm not thinking about it (laughs) you know (laughs) having negronis about seven negronis a day (laughs) that's what i did to cope with it i just drank and had had prawns I love that. I mean, that's what you do when you're in Sicily. Yeah. You're grown yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but no, when I got back, I was just like, God, how much longer? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, what sold me, I think ultimately on House of the Dragon is when I like got to set. And like, I think the first set that I saw was Dragonstone and I was just in awe of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, was there sort of a specific moment where you realized, like, not only was this something that you wanted to do, but it was something that could truly be great? I think just the the talking with Miguel and Ryan in the audition process, they, I think they'd sent me the first episode or the first two episodes so I could really just have all the knowledge to do the last tape. And the writing was fucking so good. And also having like a very primitive knowledge of, of the Game of Thrones world, I could tell that it was just so juicy. And then speaking to Ryan and Miguel, and they're so passionate about it and what they wanted to do and, and what they were telling me about the character and, and Rhaenyra and their relationship and also Otto and the King. And then just this infighting for power and succession. I was just like, oh, this is... It's going to be good. It's going to be yeah. good. And it's annoying when you feel like that because you're like, oh, I really want it now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that indifference is quite sexy sometimes, but I just definitely did not have it. I think like my favorite things about the first Game of Thrones was all of like the courtroom intrigue. It was just, yeah. it seems like does it, this show, it seems like it has a lot of that. All the Cersei and Tyrion stuff. I Oof. loved, oh my God. Like, even like Battle of the Bastards was amazing and what a spectacle, but I did just love the just them two just going at it. And so, yeah, there's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of that in, in this, which, you know, I love and really get off on. I mean, for as much as we all collectively criticize schemers, we love to watch them. <laughs> Schemer, because it's just, it's wish fulfillment in a way. Like I wish I could just not care about anyone else's well-being enough to just get my own way but I, unfortunately I, you know I just just can't and so when you see other characters living out that you're like well must be cool to to feel like that and to yeah. feel so empowered to do that all the time well I have to say you are so easy to talk to I know we had like a 20 minute interview but like I could I, we've been going on and on and oh. on but... <laughs> you too you too yeah I do I do natter no I- <laughs> I love it. Me too. <laughs> all, especially after the pandemic. I'm like, I just want to talk to people. <laughs> Same. It's like you tell me a secret, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, my last question for you, I, I, we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, how are you kind of, what's your mindset like right now? I mean, you talk, you mentioned the press store that's coming up. Like, yeah. how are you kind of taking this time in for you? 
God, I don't know, because you don't know what it's going to be like until until you're in it. And so I think I'm just hoping for my sake that it's not going to be as big as the, as the previous iteration, which I know is bad because obviously they want the show to be amazing, but I love my life and I love the anonymity that I've managed to hold on to even after having a, a decade worth of credits. So yeah, I'm not looking forward to that per se, but I am excited for people to see all the hard work that everyone's done because God, people slogged for a year and it is fucking great it is and all the oh god it's just the costumes the set design the lighting the cinematography it's just so mesmeric and i'm really i'm really excited people to see that but god i just hope i hope people are just kind because i can't bothered with people being a bit nasty or or saying stuff to me on the street because i'm just too sensitive Oh, well, thank you so much, Olivia. This has been such a treat to speak with you. Oh, you too. You too. Have a lovely rest of your day in New York. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.